Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Going Green, Eco Dogma or Salvation. In the chair is Alistair Donald. Okay, I think we should just start and people can uh, come in and join us as, as they will. Um, hello everyone, uh, welcome to this, uh, the first of the afternoon, key, afternoon keynote discussions. I'm Alistair Donald, I'm the co-convener of this uh, Battle of Ideas Festival. This session is called Going Green, Eco-Dogma or Salvation. And I'm sure it won't have escaped anyone's notice uh, that next month is the COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference that takes place in Glasgow. Tragically, we found out in the last couple of days that the Pope won't be there to join Joe Biden and the Queen and 100 plus heads of state guarded by 10,000 police and even UN troops. Um, but you get the picture. Uh, it's an event to rank alongside, or even above actually, the other global priorities signifying the rise of climate change as an issue, the rise of green politics and green initiatives as a potential solution to some of the uh, presented problems. So this session is uh, an opportunity to explore the greening of everything, the treatment uh, uh, of the environmental agenda as equivalent importance to, uh, for example, health pandemic or geopolitical tensions. And I want to use the session to dig around uh, in some of the complexities and uh, contradictions, really, of the politics of going green. Uh, net zero, for example, has become a, a mantra, but beyond something that everybody repeats endlessly, what does it really mean? What, why does the mainstreaming of the green agenda coincide with energy shortages and price rises? Why, when resilience, uh, of the, you know, resilience has become a mainstream agenda, why has that coincided with so many energy shortages or price hikes, for example? Uh, are problems an inevitable byproduct of the teething problems of green policies, or do they indicate that climate change uh, is, is really should be a priority? Uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming period. And given the implication of many of these measures seems to bypass to some extent the kind of normal democratic uh, mechanisms, what does that mean for society uh, more broadly? So these are some of the things that we can explore, uh, probably much more than that as well. To help us explore these, um, I'm going to introduce my panel in the order that they're going to speak. So on my far left is Dr. Sharar Ali, uh, spokesman for policing and domestic safety of the Green Party. He's author of Why Vote Green 2015. He trained as a biochemical engineer and philosopher and has worked as a researcher in the Science and Technology Options Assessment Unit of the European Parliament. And many of you will have noticed that Sharar was a, a candidate for the leadership of the Green Party over, over the past uh, couple of months with the election just a, a, a couple of weeks ago. And I think, uh, I mean, this is not the first time that Sherrard has been on, on a Battle of Ideas platform. And he's really, to me, a kind of inspiring character because he's one of the first people that's uh, on a platform and willing to debate these issues in as open a fashion as possible. So it's really brilliant to have you back, uh, Sherrard. Welcome, welcome to you. On my immediate left, we've got Sabina Bettler-Sfau, who's uh, chairman of the German liberal think tank Freiburg Institute, which organizes the Berlin Salon, which is a kind of debating club in Berlin. She's a regular contributor to the German magazine Novo, uh, and her regular reports from the front line of German politics for Spiked Online 
are, I think, some of the most useful comments and reflections on what's going on in German politics uh, that I'm familiar with anyway. She's recently authored two books, uh, the, la the, the latest of which is called Off Center, How the Party Consensus Undermines Our Democracy. So welcome to you, uh, Sabina. Um, on third, third we'll hear from on my far right is Hayden Prowse, a uh, man of many talents. Uh, Hayden's a satirist, a writer, a documentary maker, a director, and an actor, not necessarily in that order. Uh, he's worked or, uh, on, or starred in programs including The Revolution Will Be Televised, The Ministry of Justice, and Revolting. He's also an award-winning director for campaigning and charitable organizations such as Greenpeace and Global Witness. And I'm sure that many of you will know him most recently as the author of the satirical WokeLeaks column for The Spectator. So welcome to you, uh, Hayden. And finally, on my, uh, far, uh, on my immediate right is Austin Williams, who's a senior lecturer at the Department of Architecture Kingston University, uh, an honorary research uh, fellow at uh, XJTL University in Suzhou, China. Three years ago, he published a very important book, China's Urban Revolution, Understanding Chinese Eco-Cities, which followed on from an earlier work that he published called Enemies of Progress, The Dangers of Sustainability. And here in London, he's the director of the Future Cities Project, and you can see him elsewhere at this festival running uh, his own inimitable uh, <laughs> inimitable book launch uh, sessions called the, the Bookshop Barney, which he's uh, renowned for. So welcome to you, Austin, as well. So um, format is, is one that hopefully you're starting to become familiar with. Uh, they'll each have about five, six minutes to put forward some opening thoughts, and then it's going to be immediately out to yourselves for your uh, questions and also points and, 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 and contributions. So to kick us off, Sharon. Thank you, Alistair, and thank you for your kind introduction and it's great to be back. It's a real honour and privilege actually to be here and I'm going to start not with a digression because it's actually pivotal even to what I'm going to be talking about in this short talk. I'm going to start with expressing my acute solidarity with Kathleen Stock. It's difficult to understate what it's like to be on the receiving end of harassment and abuse, not for days, weeks and months, but years and that's something that I've also had a taste of and um, it's very hard, and we have to do everything in our power. I can tell you how much difference it makes to have people speaking out for you against that level of abuse. And well done, everybody here. I'm personally a bit miffed because I was hoping I'd get that opportunity the first time to actually get her to sign my copy, uh, her copy of uh, a copy of my uh, of her book there. Just briefly, then, um, three uh, points that I'd like to raise um, in this introduction. What is the role of non-violent direct action when we're trying to combat and raise the level of consciousness around the climate emergency, which I would hazard, hazard a guess that everybody here is aware of the <coughs> impending doom which we face if we carry on sleepwalking into overconsumption like there's no tomorrow. But let me start by saying I don't think that Insulate Britain, modelled as they seem to be, on that failed battle of Canning Town are winning friends and influencing people. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're actually harming the life chances of the people that they're claiming to want to help. And that's pretty contradictory. And that's not a smart way of doing direct action or campaigning. And I'm not saying it's easy to know what is the smart way, but I think it's quite easy to spot when it's not intelligent. So let's just preface Every time somebody talks about direct action, we should understand that 
as implicit in that, it has to be intelligent. There has to be a purpose. It's not a haphazard affair. You should be able to predict. One could have predicted the response to these latest actions, and it's not helping. It needs to be informative and transformative. Secondly, what is the real problem here that we have to contend with? I put it to you that it's a question of human motivation. It's a collective inaction problem. Many of us at different times of the week, at different times of the year, when we're switching on to David Attenborough or whatever, we are really impressed, have impressed upon us the scale of the task ahead of us. But we're finding it very difficult to get together to achieve the change and the transformation to overcome, for sure, our habitual overconsumptive lifestyles. We need to start by reframing everything. Politics has become extremely short-termist. We're talking about overcoming the fuel crisis because Christmas is on the horizon. We're talking about people being able to know where the next meal is coming from and not to have to choose between heating and eating. But even that is a very short-termist frame of reference when really, and of course you can empathize even with the protesters on the M25 because their aim and their end is a good one. It's a noble one. And they're very concerned about future generations, people who aren't around yet, who can't grab us by the collars and say, what are you doing? You've got the information. You're failing to act. So we understand their frustration and urgency. And the way to overcome it is what? Well, I would suggest that any solution has to be unity-based, not divisive. And it's got to be democratic, not authoritarian. And I hope that's a theme we can return to. And finally, there was a, a survey very recently, actually, of the youth across um, 10 or more countries globally. 10,000 16 to 25-year-olds were surveyed. And they were very clear. Just read a couple of headline points. Six in 10 were very or extremely worried about climate change, according to this scientific survey. And four in 10 were so concerned that they were hesitating to have children as a result of this climate crisis. And I don't think many of us are really in the grip of the true scale of uncertainty which is facing not even future generations that aren't around yet, but our own contemporaries, children or our children's children today. That's how we are in the grip of this. So finally, I've probably got half a minute. Yeah. Um, in terms of communication of the climate emergency, which is something that many environmentalists struggle and, and grapple with, uh, the key distinction, I think, to draw here is between alarmism and raising the alarm. They're two different things. Maybe it's not a good strategy to be alarmist, but I do think what's required of us is a hard-nosed objectivity of the scale of political and social transformation that's required in order to do what's scientifically necessary. And that may be alarming, <clears throat> but the real question for us is that, do we really want to look the reality in the face? And are we? Do we care enough about our lives, livelihoods, and the great incalculable joys of life on this planet? Do we value ourselves enough to want to save ourselves and future generations? Okay, thank you very much. So, some useful challenges thrown down there. Sabina, uh, your thoughts, please. All right. <clears throat> so, can everybody hear me? Well, thank you very much, Alistair, for inviting me for this. It's so lovely to be back in Britain after 
two years. Um, I think many of you know that this summer um, uh, and deadly floods hit certain areas of Western Europe, killing over 200 people, including 184 in Germany. And as always, when disaster hits, there are different ways of interpreting um, what happened. One interpretation was that this is a dire warning of what will happen to us if we don't get climate, uh, global warming and uh, the climate under control. But as time went by, another story emerged, which was one of administrative and state failure of a global uh, <coughs> warming debate gone totally out of control. So first of all, what happened? What happened was there was an unusual amount of rainfall in a complicated geographic area in the Rhenish uh, Slate Mountains, 200 liters per square meters within 24 hours, turning pleasant rivers into monster streams. Um, the people who'd lived, who lived there had never seen anything like it. However, a couple of days later, several scientists, meteorologists, climate historians said, if we look at a longer perspective, we can see that these floods are rare, but not unique. Not even in that area were they unique. So you had similar floods in 1910 and a flood of the same intensity in 1804. But what really shocked people and what really got the discussion going was that um, there seems to have been a grave neglect um, of authorities failing to warn people. So even though there had been warnings of re strong rainfalls, and even though floods were already building up late in the evening on the day of the 16th of July, um, people in the affected area went to bed thinking nothing was, not knowing that they were in grave danger. And only a couple of hours later, they were, um, they, they were uh, the floods surprised them in their sleep. And I can't even begin to tell you um, the stories of human tragedy which came out as a result of that. There is now a criminal inquiry. Authorities um, have been charged, the, the charge being negligent homicide. And people, of course, ask themselves the question, how can this happen in a country like Germany? Even Bangladesh, people are saying, was able to get its terrible flooding under control through improving its early warning system. There's also, there were also talks of um, infrastructure measures which should have been taken, which were neglected, like the improvement of dams, the, um, the, the, the dismantling of sirens, and so on and so on. Now, we're talking about Germany, a country which has given itself a tremendously green image, which has put a lot of energy into setting climate goals, um, talking about getting the climate under control. But people said maybe the question of adapting to climate change was gravely neglected. Um, there have been countless appeals uh, to people to change their individual behavior. And yet, at least in this instant, we see what uh, the failure was with the state. The state failed to do what is the basic job of a state to improve and protect people's lives. Germany has also been engaged in some completely contradictory policies, like talking about global warming and at the same time switching off its atomic power stations. So the last six atomic power stations will be switched off in the next year. How can we make sense of this? What has actually happened? Is it that we're talking about a huge PR exercise? Um, people have been asking a lot of questions. The Greens are 
uh, were not able to benefit from this crisis as was originally predicted. Um, we were in the middle of an election campaign. Um, there has been a lot of anger directed at the local governments, um, including at a certain green rhetoric. But here's the, um, the, the, the sort of paradox which I want to end on, which is that no matter where people turn in Germany at the moment, it seems that they will be getting more and more of a green policy. There is no way around green politics in Germany. Um, and I think people, if they want an answer to these questions, will have to push much, much harder and, 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 and will really have to demand answers. Thank you. useful getting a perspective from somewhere that all these floods have, have, have happened over the summer and, and some of the problems and issues that that raises. Um, Hayden, uh, over to you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, so I can give some uh, inside perspective onto Extinction Rebellion, I guess, because I was part of a bunch of the protests that they did back in 2019. Um, and I guess in principle, I'm a sort of supporter of them in the sense that they're incredibly annoying but so is a smoke alarm, and before the protests in 2019, I don't think Labour or the Tories had net zero targets, neither did any corporation that I can think of now, they pretty much all do. Um, but I do also feel as if they sort of served their purpose, and um, that's from insider knowledge, having been in a bunch of XR meetings where literally nothing can get decided after a four-hour debate because everybody has to agree on everything, which normally involves people sort of doing jazz hands like that in the air so people don't get triggered. And then I think XR's big idea is a people's assembly, right, which is sort of normal people deciding and telling decision makers what to do about the climate crisis, which from my experience tends to involve a sort of five to 600 plus unbcc'd email in which Neil from Surrey and Sue from Kent discuss the best and most ecological plastic with which to laminate their placards. It's definitely not a way to solve the climate crisis. And I think we all realize now that the alarm has been raised and people are starting to take this seriously and inevitably the solutions are going to come from the companies and corporations that got us into this mess. They have to. Um, but I think Greenwash was mentioned in the sort of blurb for this event and I think that's a really, really important point because it's, I, I guess the most dangerous situation would be for us to be sort of lulled into a false sense of security just at the time when we really, really, really need to take action. And it's sort of... You know, companies are reducing their emissions, but they're also massively increasing their omissions of what they're not saying in their advertising, right? Huge advertising budgets right now for all sorts of things. I think Saudi Aramco's got a very glossy YouTube advert about how they're planting a million mangroves. Fantastic way to sequester carbon, apparently, as well as the bodies of dead journalists, I'd imagine. Um, and they've got a sort of carbon capture truck that goes along and captures all the carbon that it emits as it's going. But all these things are sort of unique one-off projects from the biggest carbon emitter in the world, arguably Saudi Aramco, with very little renewable strategies going forward and no serious net zero target. You know, the same goes for other industries. The tech industry has very ambitious targets. Microsoft, for instance, Greenpeace constantly reference them as one of the tech companies that's taking their carbon emissions super seriously. But at the same time, uh, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, all these big tech companies have massive oil and gas AI um, contracts, right, where they're sort of helping the big oil and gas companies to hunt down and suck out more oil and gas out of the ground. So inevitably, what needs to happen is these companies need to look at their internal infrastructure rather than these sort of big 
glossy pet projects that are going to get them loads of attention. I guess Jeff Bezos is the perfect example, flying up into, into space, although he, he didn't actually even fly as, as high as um, Albert, the rhesus monkey that NASA sent up in 1949, um, which is a bit embarrassing. Um, and then he said he needed to go into space in order to have a, an appreciation of the fragility of the Earth, which is weird because if you look at his, people that, from Amazon talk about how Amazon have this incredible infrastructure that would enable reuse and recycling um, in a way that no other company could possibly achieve, right? If Amazon was sort of picking up the stuff that they delivered, bringing it back, reusing, recycling, there's an infrastructure there that could be used that isn't. And instead, these big corporations are doing these big, glossy projects. So I think we do, you know, we're all hypocrites. I love to um, loudly ask what the vegetarian options are in overpriced restaurants to underpaid uh, waiters, and then I'll just go for the chicken if they don't look very good. So we're all hypocrites, and I think, you know, you don't want the sort of, what is it, the uh, perfect to be the enemy of the good, and we do need to start somewhere, but the situation is critical, you know. We're already at 1.1 degrees. Um, I'm not sure about this flood thing, but it just seems for me, from being on Facebook, that the weather does seem to be getting pretty balmy with an R, not an L. And we do need to do something about it. We're already at 1.1. IPCC um, says that within the next 20 years, even with the most ambitious targets being reached in, in, in COP26 coming up, we'll still be at 1.5 within, within 20 years. Current plans will leave us at 2.7, which I think is pretty terrifying. Um, so something does need to happen very, very, very fast. And uh, it's good that XR raised the alarm now it's, now it's time for us to just question the responses that big corporations are saying they're making. Uh, thanks. So it's customary usually at things like this to apologize for being a critic of uh, environmental uh, politics, um, presumably because you get denialism uh, thrown at you. And uh, so it's good to be in a conference like this where it's in some ways permissible to question the political and the philosophical basis for some of the environmental arguments. And my interest lies in the topic of, uh, of, of how the discussion has changed, not how the weather has changed, but really how we see the world, how we see our place in it. So it's a, it's a, a broader conversation, not about the specifics and the science particularly, although we can come on to that. Um, it used to be discussed for 50 years on the culture of limits, um, limits to growth and that kind of thing, uh, but now I would argue that it's worse than that, that limits are not enough, that now we have the cult of zero, zero emissions, zero pollution, zero growth, zero harm, zero emissions, zero impact, you name it, it's zero. And it's emerged, or it's been legitimized at least, by the COVID pandemic, the conversation about zero COVID, um, and that, that has been popularizing the idea of looking inwards, Looking, uh, locking yourself indoors as a political act, sitting on your sofa, saving lives and saving the planet at the same time, doing nothing as a responsible political statement. Um, so the, it, all of that has been perfect for environmentalists um, who enjoy passivity uh, and the erosion of meaningful social interaction as a way of sneaking through a lot of policies without the uh, annoying interference from pesky questions of members of the public. And in contemporary env environmentalism, there is zero debate. We've been told this for 30 years. There is no debate, uh, and we shouldn't really be questioning any of this. So uh, I want to assess a couple of the zeros, if that's all right. So zero growth. Just last week, George Monbiot wrote an article saying that there is no such thing as green growth, for whatever the government might tell you, effectively because growth relies on more 
more energy, more industry, more people, more stuff, uh, and only degrowth or non-growth can be legitimately green. Seeing people and production as a problem rather than as a, as a solution, as, as I do, is even more pernicious, I think, than even Malthus proposed 250 years ago. Monbiot and the Greens uh, want us to have less. It's a philosophical position that kind of thrives on the idea of poverty, of low horizons, and it's a perfect storm in today's climate that 10 years ago, Carolyn Lucas wrote a book about the benefits of the wartime economy called Home Truths, oh, sorry, Home Front, um, and that environmental restraint and austerity seems to go very nicely hand in hand today. Obviously, um, they, lots of environmentalists go very quiet when there really are no things on the shelves in supermarkets because they're a bit embarrassed about it, but secretly they're delighted. Uh, that it's actually reducing our ability to uh, have more things. There's lots of anxiety about the culture wars, you've probably noticed in the press, you know, where language is used for political ends, a woman called a birthing person, and that kind of, uh, as Captain Stock uh, talks about. But actually, the Greens have been calling humans carbon emitters uh, for years, kind of dehumanizing the discussion. For Greens, human impact uh, is never positive. It's always prefaced by harmful, or negative, negative human impact. So environmentalism, I think, subverts the idea of human ingenuity, of human innovation, transforming the world for the better. Uh, people now are living longer, healthier, more varied lives, and yet social progress is always seen through a miserablest lens. Yes, the future is always a bleak place to be rather than a wonderful place to anticipate. So it's about time, I think, that we reclaim the belief in the sanctity of humanity over nature, that growth is good, growth materially, intellectually, uh, and economically. Um, then zero development. Um, environmentalism is a, is a horribly middle-class Western conversation. You've probably noticed um, most progressives, by which I mean people who believe in progress, uh, used to recognize that the third world was being screwed by the first world, that the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank were demanding that underdeveloped countries would only get money if they developed in the way that the West insisted. Yes, it was very common to have this conversation 30 years ago. Today, the situation is reversed, where there's lots of money sloshing about, and the third world is being given that money on the proviso that they do not develop. Uh, underdeveloped countries, those countries that haven't been despoiled by progress in industry, uh, where local people stay local because they've got no means of escape, where communities that respect the environment with quaint labor-saving devices um, because they haven't got modern farming industry, they are offered money not to develop protect the forests, don't build any factories. And, and it's another linguistic trick that you can call them stewards of the natural world, but it sounds more empowering and less colonial than slaves to the natural world. So through the prism of carbon, the developing world are told not to make the same mistakes as we have. Uh, and in this iteration, the West is suffering from development and uh, we are protecting the unspoiled nature and the noble savages of the underdeveloped world. So, uh, we have to be careful about what we ask for. Then zero democracy, if I may, very quickly. Clearly, the Greens are making electoral headway, and you know, credit where it's due. They have, they've achieved a mandate to get into bed with Nicola Sturgeon and nod through some seriously illiberal policies in Scotland. Uh, the Greens have also forged alliances in Germany uh, and are really raising the geopolitical tensions with China and Russia about oil. However, environmentalism in general, I think, is an imposition, and environmentalists think public are too stupid to be convinced too set in our comfortable ways, uh, and so we have to be told and instructed uh, to do the right thing. After Brexit, you might remember the middle classes are quite terrified of asking ordinary people uh, and in, uh, what they want, uh, just in case they get the wrong answer. So environmentalism is a perfect vehicle for insisting on it. 
Extinction Rebellion, as it happens, although it's been already condemned, have a 3.5% policy uh, where they imagine there is a scientific fact, which means you can't question it, that all you have to do is to mobilize 3.5% of the population for social change. That's an imposition, yes, an anti-democratic imposition. Uh, the inability to engage, to convince anyone is immaterial because they have no interest in that engagement. As Greta puts it, so much blah, blah, blah. Uh, and when you saw insulated Britain campaigner walking off GMB saying, I've had enough of talking to people in this country, you get the gist. You can glue your ass to tarmac and it's a lot easier than convincing people you're right. But the anti-democratic nature of that is something that we have to really call out. You've got so little substance that all it relies upon is kind of these catechisms. You know, my house is on fire. Oh, your house is on fire. Uh, there is no planet B. This is an emergency. And we've had an emergency powers now for 18 months, effectively, in this country. We can see what emergencies bring in terms of democratic engagement. So my concluding remark is effectively that, thank goodness, there's places like this where we can have, even though I've been rude to environmentalists, you can still have a kind of friendly conversation, I hope, Shara. Uh, about really the kind of basis and the meaning of really what the democratic mandate is. Thank you very much. Right, lots on the table. I'll give you lots of opportunities to come back to some of the points that have been raised if you feel that you're on the end of criticism. But I want to come straight out uh, to the audience and grab a round of questions, first of all. Thank you for your uh, opinions, guys. Uh, this is a question in particular for uh, Dr. Shara. So, look, if we take the premise that climate change is an existential crisis, um, has the Green Party changed its view on nuclear power, and has it been pushing a wholesale increase in nuclear power in the UK and even uh, supporting in the rest of the world? Because we can debate all we like about the economics, about the safety, but if we're all going to uh, be suffering from this existential climate crisis, we should take any uh, non-carbon-emitting, reliable source of energy that we can. Okay, thanks. And was it, can you just pass the microphone along? Yes. Thank you. Um, I was going to just change the idea that there's a climate emergency. So uh, since the ice age, we've seen temperatures increase by 10 to 19 degrees, depending on which source you want to take, and we're now worried about the last two or three degrees. And so I just want to challenge it by saying, well, let's look at how many people are dying from natural causes, which has decreased every decade and continues to decrease. So we're talking about a situation where the temperature has risen recently by uh, 1.1 degrees, um, but the impact on mankind has been uh, minimal. We have not seen more people die, and life switching has gone up. And so we've managed to adapt. And will the next degree or two degrees all be able to adapt? I think we will. And therefore, I don't think there's a climate emergency. Um, thank you. From the newspapers and politicians, it seems that the main uh, problem in the world is carbon emissions. This is what the emergency is. This is the thing that's going to change things. A long way behind that, it seems that poverty has sort of fallen off the radar as a, a priority for societies. And also development itself, infrastructure, making societies able to uh, become resilient potentially to changes in, 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 uh, in climate as well. Uh, and bear in mind, of course, that always throughout history, vagaries in climate have killed millions and millions of people, far more so in the past uh, than, than, than today. It seems to me we should consider reversing the priorities somewhat and emphasising the problems of poverty and development itself. But in order to do that, we do need growth. We do need to create the surplus as a society and individual nation states to invest in the research and development uh, and the infrastructure that, that, that we will need in order to address the problem of emissions as well. 
I think the problem is the things are seen in such a zero-sum game. Uh, not by Sharar, I have to say, but in many, many people um, in Extinction Rebellion and elsewhere. Whereas, in fact, the key to developing a clean energy and a sort of cleaner society in all sorts of different ways is precisely growth. And I do think that we can't, um, you know, that, that, that should be the, the way we prioritise things rather than the climate emergency. It's a poverty and development emergency, and the climate uh, can be resolved through that, I think. Okay, thanks. And the guy here with the microphone. I'd, I'd like to congratulate uh, Dr. Sharar Ali on his candidacy for the leadership of the Green Party, and well done on your results. Um, and uh, I, I just applaud the fact that this could have been, you, you know, you would have been the first black leader of a major political party in this country, and I, I, I think the way that you were treated during that campaign was appalling and discriminatory. Um, and unfortunately, it sets a tone for the way that many regard the Green Party, a party I support. I am aghast, frankly, that you were attacked by fellow candidates and by the previous leadership on very sectarian grounds. Um, I think the, it shows the Green Party to be almost obsessed with identity politics in a way which is deeply un, un, unpopular as well as unhealthy. Um, and so while you say about insulate Britain and the difficulties of the tactics there, it sets a tone. And then people look at the other things about the Green Party, which should at the moment be the centre, the forum, for the discussion about how we're going to change society for the benefit of all and spend a colossal amount of money. All of the decisions already appear to have been made. Um, we, you know, we've got, we've got policies which are uh, very strange and, and doctrinaire, such as the campaign that's still going on to rejoin the European Union, uh, the drugs free-for-all, complete rejection of nuclear power, um, the cult of zero, which was mentored by one of the uh, uh, speakers, the uh, almost emphatic support for, uh, for, for lockdown politics. I just hope that the Green Party can change its tone so that it can become the inclusive forum that I'm sure I, I expect you, that want the candidate for leadership, wanted the party to become. Okay, thanks. If you hand the microphone there, then you'll be the first person when I come back out for the next round of questions. No, no, not just now. I'm going to come back to the panel. Because particularly Sharar uh, and, and Hayden, I want to give you the opportunity to um, respond both to some of the criticisms that Austin's laid down in, in, in his talk, but also some of the, uh, the points from the audience about, for example, uh, green politics being kind of risk averse and not being prepared to develop things like nuclear or being anti-growth as the point was made up there and kind of miring society in, 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 in poverty. So, um, Sharar, if, if I come to you first, I mean, how, how do you respond to these things? Because they're, they're the attacks that are being mounted on, on, the, on the politics that you're espousing. I mean, firstly, as already been alluded to, it is my temperament to want to discuss and debate with people who disagree with me. Um, because I do believe, as I said at the outset, that we need unity um, in the response. We can't achieve that by reinforcing misunderstanding. One of the best ways of overcoming misunderstanding is to find out where you disagree with one another, and you're not gonna do that if you don't talk to one another. Um, I was a little bit taken aback by the scale of Austin's uh, caricaturing of the Green Movement. Uh, we're not going to do a blow-by-blow -blow account of the, every point in which um, I could contest that. But I do think you know, that's an interesting frame of reference that um, you're taking there, Austin. 
um, on nuclear power, um, again, I don't think we should have any automatic ideological objection because nuclear is nuclear to ruling it out of court um, in each and every occasion. However, I do think when you look at the facts and the risk assessment, in particular the risk of um, nuclear accident, which would be magnified in a situation where you have more extreme weather events, not diminished, and the legacy which that would bring to future generations, the arguments for even advocating for nuclear power, if, as you like, a stay of execution to buy time, are even less compelling. So we need to, to crack this particular nut and to crack overconsumption. We're going to have to change our ways. When we've got 4% of the population in the US, for example, expending 25% of the carbon pollution effects, it's absolutely the case that we can, going to the final questioner, we can advocate for infrastructure and social development in developing so-called countries because they're already not expending their due share of carbon pollution effects. And the Green Movement has never said that. In fact, decades-old contraction and convergence theory always allowed for abatement and carbon emissions to be a greater scale in those which are contributing most to the, the negative effects. Okay, uh, Hayden, if I could come to you, because I, I want to, so Sherrard said it both in his introductions and, and in the response there, this, this kind of idea of overconsumption. Mm. Now, if, if the point about developing nuclear power is correct, and it provides a kind of carbon-free solution to energy, then does that not say that there are solutions out there to, to some of the problems that we face? And actually, it should, the question shouldn't be overconsumption, but the problem of how we solve uh, some of the problems that we face. So, to kind of, because Austin said, green politics exists in this kind of cult of zero yeah. uh, uh, mentality. So, how do you respond to that? Because surely this idea of overconsumption is is almost like proof of. of, of but the cult of the cult of zero isn't a particularly green thing. The cult of zero is a corporate thing, and it means nothing. And everybody's obsessed with it as some kind of bar, but it doesn't actually exist. I mean, I, mean, I, I, tell, I don't think it's either or with growth, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, un, unfettered growth has been a part of the problem, you know? Um, I would like to just challenge the guy over there's comment about it not being a climate crisis. I think people obsess over the one or two degrees here and there, and ultimately it doesn't mean anything to many people. But it's not just a climate crisis, it's not just the world heating up and the weather getting crazy, right? It's huge habitat and species loss, it's, um, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's just the loss of some of the most incredible animals and species on the planet, which is surely something that we don't want to see. It's the vast amounts of rubbish that we're pouring into the oceans. It's not just one or two degrees here and there. But on the degrees thing, I, I would say that I think pretty much every major mass global extinction that has ever taken place has involved some form of global warming at some point or another, which should be a pretty stark warning to us. And according to the IPCC, we're facing 12 tipping points, which is pretty scary. You know, the sort of methane in the Arctic, and as soon as the ice caps melt, the methane goes up and we warm, you know, even faster. Um, I, I personally would like not to risk that if 98% plus of climate scientists say that this is a real risk. Um, it would seem it would seem pretty silly to, to ignore that. And yeah, I mean, does that answer 
the growth thing as well? Or yeah, OK, we, we, can, we can come back to it, but let me come to Sabina, uh, uh, because I, I, I wondered, uh, Sabina, in, in terms of things like the, the nuclear energy question. I mean, this is something that Germany uh, was specialised in, in, in nuclear, but it's also specialised in green politics over, over you know, more than any other European uh, country. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, invest, been invested in, in, in green politics. So just... Can you give us a, an idea in terms of how that's played out? And, and because obviously the election, the recent elections, the Greens were expected to do well. They haven't done well. You've ditched nuclear power, but you've got very expensive energy uh, come out now. So kind of what's the dynamics that have gone on? What does the German experience tell us? Well, I think there are, this is the thing, you see, there are two different trends. So um, environmentalism, on one hand, um, the, uh, the leaving uh, nuclear power was a response to environmental movement, and in fact, a response to the Green movement, because more than any other party, the Green Party stood for scrapping nuclear power. That was their main demand. And in fact, once this decision was taken by a conservative chancellor, Chancellor Merkel, there was, uh, the Green Party fell into a deep, deep crisis and it was only when the climate debate came up again that the Greens actually managed to grow again. So that was one sort of strand of environmental policy driven, as often is the case with environmental policies, by a very middle class sort of uh, um, a German audience. It was, a, it was an idea of, of, of a certain middle class group saying uh, nuclear energy is, is very, very dangerous. Merkel picked it up for entirely opportunistic reasons. Um, so once that was out of the way, you then had uh, the uh, global warming debate, uh, which, came from another which came from the same side but was a completely different issue. And it's only uh, later, it's only now that it's dawning on people that these two trends are completely contradictory, that they just do not fit together. You cannot um, stop global warming without at least having uh, some source of energy which is uh, CO2 neutral. So Germany really depends, like every other country, depends on, this, on the peak energies, either uh, gas or um, nuclear um, or coal. Coal is, is, is the only thing Germany is now depending on um, in, in a big way, but we want to leave coal as well in, 1930, uh, in 2030. 38 at the latest. So all of that is, is, is just doesn't fit. It's just completely contradictory. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's politics getting itself into a muddle. It's green politics getting itself into a muddle, finding no way out. Um, and I, I think it's because of the way German politics actually is. It's become, um, you know, like you said at the beginning, you're not allowed to question many of these things without then being called right wing or a climate denier or a pro-atomic lobbyist or whatever, because of the, the limitation of the, of the formal discussion taking place that these contradictions can continue and can sort of, uh, you know, um, re reproduce themselves again and again. Okay, let me come to Austin and then I'll come back, back out to the, the floor. But Austin, uh, the charge against you is one of, well, first of all, caricaturing uh, green politics. Uh, but secondly, I wanted to throw in some of the, uh, perhaps not, not represented in the views so far, but um, there is a kind of eco-modernist 
uh, movement that, that sees or purports to see uh, various technological solutions to some of both the environmental problems, but also ones that can overcome some of the, the kind of growth issues that uh, have been talked about from the floor. So is there a, in, I mean, you've, you've castigated the whole sort of net zero uh, uh, situation, but is there a necessary contradiction between uh, being green and, and uh, having a more kind of progressive outlook on everything else? Uh, in general, yeah. But I mean, I think that, I mean, there are nice people, right, who are Greens. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, I quite like that guy's contribution in the front here from the, the Scottish uh, conversation. But I, I think that ultimately uh, there is a, like I say, a philosophical despairing misanthropy uh, about what environmentalism represents and sees human beings as part of the problem rather than necessarily being part of the solutions as a philosophical basis. So the idea that there are, there's, there's a Malthusian angle which argues there's too many people because they buy too much stuff, they travel too far, they use too much things and that uh, contributes because that means you use too much energy and that's the problem. Um, or, or there's a little bit more liberated one which actually argues that maybe you can build more technology but always a starting point is that the carbon emissions are the problem. Uh, and you know, so you, I just think that the framing of the conversation is slightly no, not slightly, but totally distorted. So I'm more than happy to have conversations about tech and, in, and imagination and the future, but I think you should free yourself to have a 360-degree vision of what future vision and innovation could be, rather than just having a tunnel vision, because as long as you're only inventing things which have no carbon, then you're not experimenting with what might possibly happen if you, experiment, you develop something else, which maybe did have carbon, which could contribute something in the future to a better world. So there's a, a limitation by very definition about what's really going on. So I, I kind of agree that, the, for me, the framing, you know, fair enough, if you want to have a framing of environmentalism, uh, that's fair enough, as long as you've kind of done the work, done the research, and you believe it. The problem today is that it's almost a mantra where you don't even need the Green Party or, or you say, Extinction Rebellion because everybody's bought into it, right? It's now, I mean, I teach in universities. It's like the first thing you learn, right? I teach architecture. The RIB is just mandated that we have to teach the climate crisis, right? We have, that's what we have to do. Uh, not, not sustainability or, or environmentalism, but the climate crisis. And I think, actually, maybe we should be talking about development or racism or poverty or, you know, the, all the other political things. But if you don't talk about climate, then suddenly you're a, you know, a climate denier or you're part of the problem because you think, um, you know, that, this is, that the world's going to end and that's not a problem. So I just think that we just need to get a little bit of a grip uh, on this conversation and maybe give it the perspective it deserves. Okay, so back out to the floor. Uh, yes, go on. Yeah, I, I've got a question about um, geopolitics. Um, having just come from a previous panel where we're discussing the decline of the West and how, you know, the future where, you know, 2050 uh, Western GDP is going to be about 20% of the world and it's going to be the Asian 21st century. And I think one of the uh, uh, things to think about is... is how uh, green politics is very much wedded to um, a post-1989 world uh, of uh, uh, global governance. And it sees, you know, it's, uh, environmentalism has been very much attached to a politics, um, uh, an, an idealism of transcending a world of Cold War divisions. But I think there's a, a problem where we're facing a multipolar world, where 
while uh, you can talk about uh, uh, global institutions and global initiatives, the reality is the decline of the West um, and um, uh, the prospects of um, energy conflicts. And there are geopolitical consequences of um, uh, uh, the, the changing nature of uh, global um, uh, economics, and I, and I think, I think um, that there are consequences. What does a Europe do if it embraces zero carbon, when it will become reliant on external energy uh, supplies and so on? And these are already questions today. So isn't there a problem when we're thinking about any, uh, any of these sorts of questions over, over climate? change and how we understand it, whether we understand climate change as embodying the decline of the West, um, uh, uh, and how we, uh, or if we uh, 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 are on board with those questions, that we've right. tied ourselves to global governance. Okay. Um, yes. Hello. Yeah, um, just briefly, I'll consider myself a lapsed engineer, and I'm quite happy to chat any time about so-called technical fixes, anything like that, to... Uh, beat the so-called problems with climate change or whatever. But my main point is, and I'm prepared to be called old-fashioned on this, what bothers me a bit about environmentalism and the Greens is a kind of lack of old-fashioned ideology. I mean, does it consider itself uh, post-capitalist? I know there's a whole mixture in there, but I have really got a concern, and I think this is why in some ways it's difficult to have a truly intellectual discussion about I mean, it says green dogma, whatever. I just don't see any people I would see as impressive green ideologues or intellectuals or whatever. And I don't know if uh, anybody sees that as being the case. I mean, Stuart Brand or someone like that might be seeing it. But even then, I don't see the real positive intellectual force of greenery for the future being put forward, I guess. So. My question is around the individual international corporations and government. Many argue that the individual carbon footprint cannot be compared to that of international corporations. So why should I separate my waste? Why should I stop eating meat, for example? And there's the government who can supposedly better regulate actions. So my question is, who do you see as having the greatest responsibility? And what do you see as, our, as the roles of these three entities in promoting the climate change effort? Thank you. Okay, yes. I just wanted to make a direct point to what Hayden said, Hayden Prowse said about the warm weather um, causing extin extin um, animals, creatures being becoming extinct, sorry, I couldn't say, 99% of all species ever lived, but you said it's categorically untrue, 99% of all species ever lived were already extinct by the time humans started evolving into current format of themselves as a civilized human beings. This is a fact, check it out. And this happened due to ice age, not due to warm weather. When the weather warmed, the, the civilizations flourished, and this is also another fact. So, uh, humans are a part of the nature, not outside the nature, 
um, causing problems for, for Earth. We are the nature, part of the nature. Okay. Having grown up in a, in a generation of the, the silent spring, I know that we have actually coped with a whole lot of things that have gone wrong. Um, we were predicted to have run out of food by the year 2000. Instead, our yields on grains got bigger and bigger to the point where the commodity prices were, were very, very low at the turn of the century. Um, so um, I think that we should be doing, you know, what does the panel think about doing more of this? Um, because carbon dioxide is actually incredibly useful gas and it's, uh, they already in the greenhouses where they grow most of our salad leaves that are imported from the Netherlands, they pump carbon dioxide into it to, to make them grow more quickly. So isn't it more a case of not actually catching it? We're not using something that's useful. We're putting it up in the atmosphere and then getting upset about it when it changes the temperature when we could be catching it. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just want to know who's over-consuming and where's all this unfettered growth because I, I'd like some of it. But surely the biggest crisis of capitalism of the last 40, 50 years has been the lack of growth the lack of productivity improvements, the lack of technological change. You know, some people have lived in a lifetime that have gone from, um, you know, tractors to space travel, whereas, you know, the technological change in my lifetime has been pretty much reserved around the internet and, and our smartphones and things like that. So I think the problem is we're not progressing enough, we're not progressing fast enough, rather than progress and growth as being something that needs to be limited Okay. Can I just ask a question before I come back to the panel? Who, who here is in support? Who, who considers themselves to be an environmentalist? Because I really want to hear from you guys. Yes. Let's, let's bring the microphone down here and get a couple of comments from down here. I, I do kind of consider myself a bit of an environmentalist. Um, I wanted to raise a point about economics, actually, because we keep talking, using economic terms here, we're talking about GDP and growth and things like that. But surely one of our biggest problems is that the entire history of economics and all of its models depend upon fossil fuels, mm -hmm. right from Adam Smith onwards. So what we have not, and not only on fossil fuels, but on assumptions about the infinite and incorruptible nature of the Earth's resources, so factors of production, such as the air and the Earth, are considered to be free and infinite when we now know that they're not. Surely we need to be rethinking the way in which we account for these things, the way in which we model them economically, and on that basis, rethinking what we mean by economic growth, and rethinking that in terms more of welfare of people and of the planet. Okay, let me come to you first this time, Austin. Is that not an entirely reasonable proposition? Uh I, I am, I'm, I'm arguing that water and air are reasonably infinite, if there's such a concept. Um, it doesn't, I, mean, I mean, there's a thing in, uh, in China where just before the Olympics, they seeded the clouds to ensure that uh, there was no rainfall over Beijing during the Olympics. Um, and a lot of uh, people further into China complained that the clouds which were there right uh, wasn't raining on their crops because China had made it uh, rain a little bit further down the geographic uh, line. Um, so on that level, you could argue that there's some legal basis for arguing for the rights to rain and air and what have you, but I don't really put it on that level. But I, I only wanted to talk just generally, uh, sorry, I was going to go off, off beam, to talk about um, what really is happening in 
China on the geopolitical front because I think it's important that there's two things. One is that, as, as, as was argued, there is a kind of a replay of some of the global dominance of an ailing West in order to kind of um, harangue the, the East uh, about their um, profligate ways or their terribly um, carbon-intensive ways, um, forgetting the fact that obviously we went through that in the Industrial Revolution and China deserves to go through that, so does uh, Africa and what have you today, uh, in order to develop, and they are developing very well. Secondly, China is obviously at the forefront of developing solar panels, wind turbines, lithium batteries, you name it. They are the number one producer of these things, therefore it's odd that they're being criticized. However, many solar panels, when you fly over China, are in, in uh, Xinjiang province, where the Uyghurs uh, live, and of course that now is a, you know, persona non grata, if you like, uh, geographically that you're now not supposed to support it because the Uyghurs are making solar panels and that's a terrible thing. So you can't win in some respects on these things, you know. So they're doing the right thing, but they're using the wrong people. Um, I would only argue that in terms of the Britain, we've now uh, are still in the middle of an inquiry on Woodhouse Colliery to try to get coking coal uh, in order to um, somehow prop up the ailing steel industry. Whereas what's happening in China is that because Australia insulted China about uh, the COVID originating in Wuhan, uh, they banned corking coal from arriving in, in China. So they have millions and millions of tons of Australian corking coal lying in the ports of China, not being used, uh, which is now being bought by America and therefore not being delivered to us. Um, the fact that uh, they are now, uh, because of environmental policies and health and safety policies, closing down factories in China, throwing people out on the door, industry is now working on a three-day week because of environmental policies, and, uh, and there's a slowdown within China creating all kinds of problems. There's a, there's a global dynamic to environmental conversations, which I think we're slightly losing when we're just talking about buying a Tesco bag or you know, uh, eating healthily in a local store. I just think that we have to recognize that some of the implications of what are being advocated have tremendous geopolitical uh, implications for development within the, within the developing world, but also tensions within the, the so-called first world. And I think we have to be very cautious about it. Right, Hayden and Sharar, I, I want to give you the opportunity to come back yeah, to sure. some of the criticisms because uh, sure. you're getting it in the neck a bit and I no, think we fine. should uh, come out fighting here. I, I was wondering whether the chair was introducing Hayden as dabbling in satire, right? Didn't he, you didn't mean Austin then? No. No, okay. Um, look, well, I mean don't. Austin, just to start with Austin and then we'll go to the floor because that's some incredibly far-ranging and pertinent questions from the floor. But um, Austin is criticizing human beings for blaming ourselves. Uh, for being part of the problem and not actually looking to us as a solution. But we need both because we are part of the problem. We are the problem. And we need to look at that and recognize it. In terms of the far-ranging questions, I mean, they've been absolutely brilliant questions. Let's take one about ideology. What, what kind of ideology do Greens today have? Well, it's, it's multivarious. Um, you know, some of us might consider ourselves to be anti-capitalist, okay? I think that's quite constraining. Uh, personally, I like to think of myself as having a robust sense of reality. If you look at the last IPCC report, it shows you what is on the cards if we carry on like there's no tomorrow. I also think of myself as somebody who wants to see the true value in our lives. And that, unfortunately, is not properly calibrated or calculated by zeros at the end of your bank balance, which will be of no value to you if you're living on a planet which does not have breathable air and does not have drinkable water. And all you're facing ahead of you 
and it will be us, will be the new migrants, by the way, if the Gulf Stream gets diverted, where are we the ones wanting to get onto the continent of Europe? Because we will be faced with incalculable consequences in terms of food wars and migration. So the question is, coming back to collective action problem, we're tinkering around the edges. We're trying to have our cake and eat it. And we do need an overhaul of the economic system, which is forcing us into this quandary and is making us think that we're actually being able to have our cake and eat it because we're exporting our carbon consumption activities elsewhere, importing crapula from China or whatever. What we need to do is properly cost the impact of our actions to the planet. And the best model we have of that, I mean, there are plenty of them around, even the EU emissions trading scheme was trying to introduce a carbon-based currency. What we need to be doing, which would be egalitarian at a stroke, something I'm putting to the next party conference, is a carbon budget, an individual carbon budget. Each one of us would have an allowance for the year or for the next 10 years averaged out, and that would be our expenditure. Because you have to start from the science and work backwards. We simply cannot carry on living as we're currently doing. It may not allow you to have a flight every year. You may have to compromise on that. But if everybody is playing their part, unlike the current pick and mix haphazard approach, if everybody is playing their part and there's a political will to do so at COP coming up around the corner, I think that we can do that because most people realize it. Certainly the six out of 10 or the four out of 10 youth who were recently surveyed understand the consequences of inaction. Yeah, wait a minute. Let me bring in Hayden. I just want to address the point that the lady here in the front made about um, me saying that sort of one or two degrees was killing loads of species. It was not what I said. It's just too many people eating all the species. You know, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot easier not to be a misanthrope back in the 60s. But you know, now there's 7.8 billion people on Earth. I don't know what you are if you love 6.8 billion people, but you just feel a bit odd about the extra billion. Are you still a misanthrope or not? You still love quite a lot of people. Um, and I think growth is, is, is an important point there because there is a sort of fundamentalism within the green movement, a sort of Luddite aspect to it, right, where we sort of, you know, the noble savage you mentioned and all that sort of stuff, where we'd like people in the global south to stay exactly as they are and not grow in the same way we did. But that isn't the green movement. That's an element of the green movement. And I think, um, you know, it's, I think our, our carbon footprint over a year here in the UK is, or over two weeks here in the UK is what someone in Malawi is in, t in two weeks. So there's clearly a question here of, of overconsumption. You can't really be a, an environmental activist in this country or in large parts of the West and not be a hypocrite. Um, but I think what we can do here is, is investment, right? The chap over there mentioned who are the sort of intellectual forces within the green movement, and they're not ideological. They're people, I don't know, working on carbon capture and storage or cold fusion, the people that are, you know, the scientists that are going to get us out of this mess. And what we have our, at our disposal is money, and we should be funneling money into technologies like these in order to get us and the global south out of, the, out, out of this mess. Because, you know, global, so, you know, growth in the global south, fine. We don't want to impinge people's ability to sort of become middle class like the rest of us. But at the same time, you know, the chap over there talked about adaptability, and when climate change hits, it's going to be those vulnerable people that are, are affected hardest by the impacts of climate change and the crazy weather conditions. So they can grow as much as they like, but we'll be fine 
they, they won't, unfortunately. So I think that, that's another point about protecting, okay, about I'm protecting come out more again vulnerable in, countries. I'm going to come out again in a minute, but let me just take a quick, couple of quick comments from Spina on, on the youth yeah, I, question. I wanted to get back, come back on the youth question because I really think we're failing our young people by constantly raising this type of alarmism. I see it in, in Germany. I have two children who are teenagers. Uh, who get taught these kind of, you know, the, the end of the world is nigh, day out and day in, and I'm not really surprised that a lot of them feel a bit depressed. You know, I even, I mean, I mean, I remember growing up in the 1980s in a very green Germany, and I was told by my teachers that in a couple of years we would have no more forests. Imagine a German without a forest. And I remember being depressed, walking through the German forest, thinking it's so sad that in a couple of years' time we won't have trees anymore. Well, we have more trees in Germany now than we had in the 1980s. And, um, you know, you mentioned very briefly, sort of, sort of a bit, you know, on the side, the hypocrisy. I think that's one of the biggest problems because we are teaching our kids to be very, very hypocritical. So I've, taught, I've been speaking to some of the young people joining the Fridays for Future demonstrations. They're very aware of the fact that they will never be able to live the type of life which you know, they, they're meant to live if, they, if, they, if, they're, if they're on zero consumption. They won't be able to do it because they all come from middle-class families. Another problem, are we really teaching our kids, do we really want our kids to live a life of, of hypocrisy? But there is hope because in the past German elections, the first time voters, everybody thought they'd be voting Greens, you know, from all that kind of education they've been getting. Well, surprise, surprise, they didn't. First time voters in the majority voted for the Liberal Party, which is the party which is seen as the most oppositional party to the, Green part, to the Greens. So um, I think young people are reacting to it and I think that's a healthy and good sign. Let's come back to it. Let's come out for another round of questions. So I'm particularly interested in hearing from anybody who's kind of got a bit of green blood uh, support over environmentalism. So Thank you, yeah. Um, so um, a slight challenge then to the anti-green speakers on the platform, try to, try to redress the balance a little bit from the floor. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree. There are massive problems with the philosophical approach that the green movement has taken. I, th I think... You know, the Green Party had an opportunity in Britain to break through recently because most of us are utterly sick and fed up of the established parties and the way they behave. And I think the Green Party have squandered that, unfortunately. Uh, panel members are probably on board with that, uh, but uh, I, I think that is a, a great shame. Uh, you know, personally, um, I, I think the way we've dealt with uh, green issues in the UK is to offshore it. We've abandoned um, thousands of well-played working-class jobs because we destroyed our manufacturing industry. We sent those industries and the pollution those industries cause to poorer countries where poorer people make the goods so we can have cheap iPhones. And frankly, we should all feel an absolute sense of shame that that's what we've done as a country over the last few decades in my lifetime where I've seen you know, so many uh, manufacturing sites sh uh, shut down and we no longer uh, build our own things and the, the pollution is now polluting uh, the developing world when we should be taking responsibility for it here. What I would say to, to the people who are against the Green Agenda or sceptical of it is, you know, and I've challenged myself on this uh, and, I, and I've tried to look at it from both angles, I'm not convinced by the climate change arguments, but what if they're right? If they're right, it is fundamentally, you know, it is, it is really, really catastrophic. So why on earth would we not hedge our bets? 
That is the sensible thing to do. Why should we not be building massive wind farms off the coast of the UK so most of our energy comes from wind power? We put that in battery farms so that we have reliability from the national grid. Right now, half of our energy that's being uh, produced at the moment is coming from gas-fired power stations. You can look it up on a brilliant tracker produced by the uh, University of Sheffield, which tells you in real time where our power's coming from. We're paying an absolute fortune for it, and we're being stung in our electricity bills. That's not a sensible thing to do. It's time to stop arguing. It's time to start doing sensible things that benefit everybody. Good. OK, if you hand the microphone there, and I'm going to take this guy over here. I always treat environmentalists in good faith, and I've always tried to have a conversation and a debate with the Green Movement and the Environmental uh, Movement and environmentalists in good faith. The, point, the, point, the problem is that at, one, at a certain point, it, you start to wonder whether it is in good faith. And one of the problems is that, um, in reality, when we talk about uh, climate crisis and CO2 emissions, you think that the debate is what about CO2 and how do we fix or solve or deal with CO2. And of course, technology is important. And of course, if we were hedging, if we were seriously hedging our bets, we would be spreading our bets. We'd be building nuclear as well as solar, as well, as well, as well, as well as pouring billions of research and development into fusion, because that's around the corner. That will come if we're serious about it, and it will be a, a complete game changer. The trouble is, I don't think that the conversation is in good faith. I think that once you start having the conversation about spreading your bets, and being serious about uh, developing uh, clean energy and abundant energy, that's the key point, abundant energy, right? You actually suddenly realize the conversation's not in good faith and it's about something else, it's about overconsumption. Now, what's really interesting about the ind Industrial Revolution, very quickly, right, is in the several thousand years before the Industrial Revolution, all the barbarism, the bloodshed, the murder, slaughter, misery, poverty, was all carbon neutral, <laughs> right? And everything that is progress, that isn't those things, has come after the Industrial Revolution with, funnily enough, this huge release of energy. Right? That is what fossil fuels is. It's the harnessing of energy by human beings to make things better. Right? So for me, the real in bad faith issue comes when I say, well, what if you have abundant energy, plentiful, limitless? Right? What would humans do with it? And what turns out to be the case is environmentalists are afraid of what humans will do with abundance, right? They dislike the idea that we can do things with that energy, right? That's all it is. Okay. And that's the in bad faith point that we need to deal with. Okay, thank you very much. So, yes, don't, no, that guy there in the, yes, thank you. Um, I believe that at the heart of these discussions, there are really two questions. The first one is what we should do to to tackle climate change, and the most fundamental question is whether this is actually happening. And I believe the level of debate between the two is different, because this is a different issue. That what we should do about it is, is a scientific, engineering, and political problem. But whether this is happening is a, is a scientific problem. And it is not a debate that every one of us can truly participate. I don't believe we can. And I think that you, the way we usually, we usually tackle these problems is by listening to the current status quo of the, of the, of the science community. And sometimes we might feel that the current status quo of the scientific community might feel a bit dogmatic. I mean, if you talk to someone about gravity before the beginning of the 20th century, everybody would say, yeah, Newton's law exp explains gravity perfectly. But the thing is, science is, very, is, is, is not often the scientist is completely wrong about something. It usually it defines our understanding. So when Einstein came, for instance, and said, you know, 
this was a good approximation, but it's not entirely correct. But that doesn't this means that our previous understanding was completely wrong. We built structures and standards for 600 years on Newton's law. That doesn't mean it was wrong. So my point, my main point really is, is it dogmatic to say that I hear what the scientific, the majority of the scientific community says, and what they're saying right now is that we are on a course which is really bad for our species. So how can, how can I, is it dogmatic to listen to that? Thank you. Um, I certainly don't think we should stop questioning and talking and moving to, to action, because I think the problem is that we're not doing enough talking and thinking. And I think what I'm really surprised by that the, the panel haven't really addressed is, is this new fatalism that is really informing this whole discussion. The fact that we've, we've labeled this an emergency, when in fact the science is not agreed. You know, you, you might look at the IPCC, and I, wouldn't, I don't think I would believe 90% of what they're saying because they have politicized the science. The science, the scientists have become alarmists. They are the climate, the, the environmental activists now. Um, and this is part of the whole move that we see across society where the experts have now taken over the asylum and that we as the ordinary people should just accept that what they are saying is inevitable and that unless we do something, um, we might end up in a situation where we actually, what we're going to do is going to be worse than what we actually face now. And I want to just reiterate a point that I think Austin made obliquely, which I think is a critical question here. The problem is that once you have this fatalism, that, that what we are facing is inevitable, you've already narrowed down the scope within which you can inquire. Because you've already identified what the problem is. And the problem, as we all know, anybody who's been involved in innovation or in science, 90% of the work that you do is to work out what is the question you need to ask. You've already answered it which means that all the research and the science that you talk about and the, the, the so-called scientists who are trying to solve this problem, what they are doing, they're doing this in a very narrow, confined space and not opening their minds to new possibilities of areas that might emerge that could easily solve the energy questions that we have. And I'm not just talking about nuclear. There's an enormous amount of research that is coming out of some laboratories that gives you enormous positive hope about abundant energy in the future. But that's not going to emerge because it's all been subjected to a fatalistic pragmatism that says something has to be done. Okay, thank you. So, very quick comments. 30, com 30 seconds worth of comments right the way down, then I'll come back out for a final round of questions. I just don't know where all this stuff comes about environmentalists despising abundance. I mean, I love abundance. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is an environmentalist. I think he's pretty fond of, of abundance. Um, industrial revolution, sure, fair point, but is there not the option of, or the possibility of having a new technological revolution? Peter Thiel, who I'm sure is a, someone that a lot of people like in this room, does the thought experiment of saying, walk into a room, what about that room or, the, or that office is different from how it would have been in the 60s and 70s? I think the industrial revolution reached its peak in the 70s, and now we've plateaued. What We're sort of upgrading our phones so we get slightly be better picture quality. There are thousands of things that we could be investing in to move, you know, the West into a sort of I was about to say bright new green future, but then I sounded like a crazy fundamentalist too. But it's true, we could be doing stuff to move us into a new technological revolution that would be super exciting, and that's what we should be investing in. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a great believer in, uh, in more things. That would be called overconsumption in these days, but obviously I don't think I, go, I consume too much. 
I mean, my physique might tell otherwise, but uh, there's a large proportion of the world that doesn't consume enough, and I think that, that we should be kind of broadly considering beyond our own uh, horizons here. And also, when I mentioned Greens, I, I'm, I'm not having to go to the Green Party. I mean, I used to be a member of the Ecology Party in the good old days, but um, I think that I was talking about environmentalism or environmentalists as a, as a thesis, and that is the level of... Um, discussion about why we have too much or certain people have too much and how we need to kind of um, uh, argue that less may be a, 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 an acceptable position. That is a corporate conversation, right? This is not necessarily the XRs or the insulated Britons of this world. There are corporates now who have bought into this. Governments, COP26, right, is not you know, Fred blogs around the corner. This is the world leaders who have bought into this as the new man mantra of how you can reorganize the framing of capitalism by actually bringing in austerity, maybe producing slightly differently, and recognizing that people are going to have to pay for it. So, you know, let, let's not fool ourselves that environmentalism here is actually intervening in the third world in a much more hostile way than even old-style kind of colonial capitalism did, and we have to be alert to it. I think our politics is addicted to the notion of there is no alternative, uh, and we see it on all sorts of levels, and I think uh, environmentalism lends itself to that, you know, saying there is no alternative for what we're doing. Um, I'd like to go back to the question about the fossil fuels, because I think it, is, uh, it isn't right to, to look at, uh, see it as one straight line from Adam Smith, in fact, you know, at Adam Smith's time, people didn't know how to use oil, certainly didn't know how to use atomic power. So, you know, just, you know, there, are, there have been alternatives and people have developed new sources of energy as time went on. And um, I, I think it's, it's a little bit our mindset at the moment that we're kind of stuck in, in the here and now. And we think, you know, there, we can't go further. You know, this is it. And the fatalism, the no alternative politics, that's, what, that's our biggest problem, and I think we, we're going to have to overcome that, because otherwise we won't be able to solve the problems of the future. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, there are so many good questions. Um, maybe I'll get another chance later if I don't cover them all. But firstly, I mean, hell, hell hath, hath no fury than environmentalists who disagree with each other. Although Sabina was too polite to name me, she was looking at me and glaring at me when she was talking about <laughs> contributing to depressing the children. I think there are two sides to that. The reason why the children are depressed is they have every good reason to be depressed. I think a far bigger problem, which is why I spoke about alarmism and raising the alarm, is retreating into what I'd describe as a post-Freudian self-pity, where instead of facing up to the consequences of the cause of that justified dep depression in our children, we're retreating back and wishfully thinking, and this is also a problem of induction, because every swan we've ever seen is white, we think the next one will be. I don't want to be the person, Sabina, saying, we told you so, I told you so, and actually, we don't have that luxury of carrying on sleepwalking like there's no tomorrow because we will face the IPC report. It's not fatalist to say, if we don't mend our ways and carry on as if there's no tomorrow, this is what the consequence will be. That's not fatalism. That's choice. That's reminding everybody that we have free will. We can see it with our own eyes. The science is telling us. They're not telling us because they're biased. They're telling us because they're reporting the facts. Okay, so I want to give you all 90 seconds to sum up, so we're going to zip round. So on you go. Right, so I just wanted to pick up on what Sabine was saying about children. Um, I think it's an absolute disgrace the way children have been marshalled into this cause. I mean, we all abhor the child soldier, but we seem to tolerate the idea that children have been scared witless 
by YouTube, and you can go onto YouTube and look at uh, Roger Hallam, How I Speak to Children, or is it Rupert, Rupert, Rupert Reed? You know, How I Speak to Children, it's absolute disgrace. And we abhor the child soldier, and yet we, we tolerate, you know, um, thousands of school kids being frightened out of their lives. I was rung up by somebody who asked me, to, it said some people were starting up um, a Facebook group to combat this, this was two years ago, and there was only about six in it when I was asked to be an admin. Within a couple of weeks, I was being rung up by concerned parents who said, one woman, she said she lived in Brighton and the, uh, an Extinction Rebellion had painted a mural, just like in Northern Ireland on the gable end of a house. Uh, another woman said her child had been bullied at school because when she dropped her off, they said, your mother is killing the planet. I'm an optimistic environmentalist, so I think let me just start there. Yes, we're in a crisis, but I think this is one of the biggest chances we have as society of really marshalling trillions of dollars around the world to actually redress some of the problems of the past. So I think there is this false dichotomy that's given of environmentalists as wanting poverty. I don't want poverty. I just don't want it in Zimbabwe, where I'm from. I don't want it in South Africa. I don't want it in all the places where mining and fossil fuels have created tons of violence, sir. They, that violence you may not be seeing here, but it certainly happened in Iraq. It's certainly happening in Nigeria. So all this idea that fossil fuels are clean is nonsense. And just finally, this idea that actually, yes, we as individuals can make an impact, um, I think is really important. But companies also need to really be held account. I'm so in favor of taxing the polluters. Every time you go on a cruise, pay a heck of a lot more and for that money to be redistributed to where the climate impacts are being felt. I'm hugely optimistic about what this actually gives us as an opportunity to change the world. Okay, thank you. That microphone's going over there. And yes. Hi, um, thank you. Um, Overconsumption and choice. I got a Boris bike here today. Personally, I would much rather have been gunning along the embankment in James Bond's Aston Martin DB9. Um, on Monday, there was a protest at Wandsworth Bridge uh, by Insulate Britain. Four million people so far have seen the YouTube footage of those protesters being dragged away by white van man and have applauded the actions, uh, how they intervened to stop the protest. Now, it's all very well being green, We're, but the poorest in this country are about to have a 100 pound levy on their bills um, at the same time that universal credit is being cut. So how do we square this particular circle? Okay, thank you. So over there, that microphone goes to the middle here. First of all, I, I admire you guys from the Green Movement from coming here because uh, it's useful to have a discussion and too often we don't get to have discussions, we don't get to question these things. However, Sharar, you said we told you so. Uh, and one of the problems is that you have told us so, so many times in the past and been wrong every time. So you told us so 50 years ago with the population bomb. Didn't come true. You told us so 50 years ago with the Club of Rome um, discussion. None of that came true. In fact, every single one of the Club of Rome's predictions turned out to be absolutely false. We were told, you know, 20 years ago that we're gonna have six degrees temperature rise. It hasn't happened. 
And so one of the problems is the credibility. So this, it works with young people. It's not going to work with somebody my age because I've heard it so many times before. And it takes on this sort of millennial idea. It becomes a sort of religious mantra rather than anything else. And that's why you will find cynicism. Okay, we're almost out of time. I just want to give the final uh, question. Yes, on you go. Um, brief point to Austin. Um, I mean, former politics students have a little go at the philosophy kind of basis that you are saying a lot of your things on. Um, more just one thing where you said the attitude that we're always the problem and that's a very negative thing and why should it always be that we're the problem and that's a really negative way to look at things. Well, I mean, other words that might just be responsibility. Um, and I sort of don't really see the issue with saying that, yes, we are the problem, but we can also bring solutions. And I haven't really heard anything actually against that from yourself, for instance. So I feel like you're weighing a lot of what you're saying on philosophy. But again, if I'm honest, it's quite a vacuous basis to just say it has to be negative, taking any responsibility personally. Okay, thank you very much. So, panel, I think uh, this is going to be your final chance for comments. Just give us sort of yep. 60, 90 seconds of uh, a few thoughts yeah, to take absolutely. away. So, so, Shara, on you go. Yeah, I mean, firstly, uh, if I'm nodding like that, it generally means I'm disagreeing with you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm careful with my words. I didn't say either today or in the past, I told you so. I didn't say that to Sabina. I said, I don't, would hate to be in a situation where I said, I told you so. And I was particularly arguing against this wishful thinking type of perspective. Going back to that gentleman over there who made a very good point about what does the risk assessment tell us would be the rational thing to do. Well, Pascal has already thought this. He was talking about the rationality or otherwise of believing in God when he had no such inclination to believe in God. But he decided it would be better to believe in God to avoid eternal damnation. We're in a similar situation here where I think we have to take every responsible action, including, because we're not technophobes in the environmental camp, we're not. By all means, look at technical solutions, so long as they don't just simply postpone the inevitable by allowing us to think we can carry on over-consuming like there's no tomorrow. Nuclear wouldn't pass that test because it's not a good form of energy. There might be other solutions which do pass that test and are worthy of exploring. But in the meantime, finally, Ideologically, it's not gross domestic product. It's personal happiness well-being index. Generally, those of us who are going around queuing up or writing for an IKEA sofa or the next iPhone, it's not making our lives happier, is it? The more you earn, the more you think you can't afford what you really need. It's not making our lives happier. Once we crack that nut and identify and cherish the things that do make our lives worth living, relationships, for example, or a beautiful sunset, or a spectacular landscape, then I think we will truly value and find the solution that is required today, not tomorrow, to overcome this climate. And it is an emergency. It's an existential threat. Make no mistake. OK, thank you very much. Sabina, your final thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, one, somebody here said, uh, made the point, what if they are right? And I think that's a fair enough point to make. Um, you know, what if they are right? Well, if they are right, and it could be the case that we do are facing uh, global warming, um, surely we do need to expand the discussion. We need to, any alarmism would hinder us from doing what we should be doing. And that was what I was trying to say in my introduction, that actually alarmism and narrowing down of our policies is posing a grave danger to us. 
Um, and that's why I think, you know, we have to, we ha we have to, we have to think beyond what we've been discussing now. So um, yesterday I read in my newspaper that if Germany wanted to be climate neutral by 2045, it would cost 5,000 billion uh, euros. 5,000 billion euros. How are we going to spend them? You know, where are we going to spend them? Is, are we going to throw them out of the window? We have thrown out a lot of money by uh, wind turbines, by alternative energies, which with all the money that's been poured into it only generate about 5% of Germany's primary energy source. It's a waste of money and it is actually failing people, failing people in the here and now. The future generation is only being used as an excuse. Youth are only being used as an excuse because, uh, you know, rather than doing politics for, pe for people now, people are saying, well, we're doing them for the, for the future generation basically meaning they're pushing through their own agenda. So I very much agree with people saying we have to open up the debate. We have to look beyond the discussion we've been having now. Okay, thank you very much. Hayden, your final uh, 60 seconds. Um, I, yeah, I would just like to say that I think a lot of people are sort of confusing the environmental movement with XR as if they're the only environmentalists. I mean, all you've got to do is go on Bernard Looney, BP's CEO's Instagram to see that he's the wokest CEO ever. And all he ever does is do Q&As with Gen Zs about climate change. So, I mean, it, pretty much everyone's doing this. I think even the Illuminati have got a net zero target at this point. So it's just about really making sure that companies are actually carrying through with their promises. And it, it's, an, it's an exciting time. I think, you know, the sort of military industrial technology that defined the 20th century that gave us satellites and FaceTime and GPS and all that stuff that also made Apple the richest company on the planet for a period. You know, we need to have what defines the 21st century, we need to be on a sort of climate change war footing and to have some kind of climate industrial complex that creates the technology of the 21st century that's gonna, you know, that's gonna change all, all our lives for, for the better. And I do think, do think it's true that the Green Movement does need more visionaries with positive um, outlooks on the future rather than a sort of, you know, slightly anti-Luddite perspective on anything that's new and growth related. Thanks, Ethan. Austin, your final thought. Uh, well, I think 1.5% of carbon emissions come from uh, uh, the internet. Um, so maybe that would be a good way. If that, came, if that went down, then maybe uh, XR couldn't communicate with each other, and that might be a good thing. But I think that um, the, the question directed to me specifically on, on uh, responsibility in human, solving human problems, I mean, I completely agree. Obviously, I'm a humanist, and I think that humans do solve problems. My problem is, is that the environmental conversation is where seeing human beings as the problem, as over-consuming, there's too many of us, uh, we use too much energy. You know, everything is deemed to be and set in the conversation about why it's a problematic. And I, th I think you need to reframe that conversation about humanity as being a solution rather than actually seeing nature as being sacrosanct. So that's how I would frame it. I think that uh, the, the conversation more broadly is that you see that even in this conversation, China, which is, you know, almost... Uh, able to do whatever it damn well pleases, not coming to COP26, for example. However, it's been brought to heel in terms of the environmental conversation. Even you know, China has been brought to heel by Boris Johnson, uh, that uh, they've had to pull out of Africa, right? They're not going to be building any more power stations for Africa. And I don't think that's a victory. Uh, I think if you want Africa to develop, I, and I, I applaud what you say, but I think that the, uh, Africa has been exploited for a, an awful long time, and it will continue to be so, but under a new guise. And the idea that if you want Africa to develop, what's happening at the moment is that there will be carbon credits, as was already mentioned. Those are being bought back by the West. The West can develop and just pay the credits to Africa not to use them, not to develop. And that's the same iniquity as we've had for 200 years, but in a different guise. So I think we have to be a bit careful about this. Okay, can we thank all the panel, please?
Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. One, two...